The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A blowout jobs report, a potential breakthrough in containing the coronavirus, and a new Trump bump. All these powering the market higher this week, but can the good times last? Plus, it may not be the most comfortable night's sleep for Casper investors. The company slashing its IPO price has questions swirl about its strategy for the future. We will unbox it all. And Macy's is on the clearance rack. It's the year of the chicken, and the vaping CEOs get lit up on Capitol Hill today. We'll have that all for you. But we begin with today's markets, and Seema Modi is here with those numbers. Seema. Good afternoon, Kelly. Markets in rally mode once again. And check out the move in oil. We're now up about 4% for Brent crude. That's the biggest percentage gain in more than a month after OPEC and Russia are reportedly reviewing production cuts. The Dow currently up 1.2 percent. Now, with this move in oil, a relief rally for oil and gas names that have really suffered as of late. You can see they're up 6 percent for the sector, but still down about 15 percent so far this year. Now, those Coronavirus fears haven't gone away. In fact, Nike expects a material hit, while Capri Holdings, that's the parent of Michael Kors, says travel restrictions could decrease spending both in China and in countries frequented by Chinese tourists. The company did beat earnings, the stock up about 8.5 percent. Kelly, back to you. Shrugging that off. Seema, thanks so much. And we begin with the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. There are now more than 24,000 confirmed cases worldwide, including 11 here in the U.S., the death toll stands at 494, all of those in China at this point. Let's bring in Meg Terrell. Uh, Meg, everyone's hoping for good news on the treatment or vaccine front especially. Have we got that yet? Well, we have potential news on these treatments. So because there is nothing that's been developed specifically for this novel coronavirus, and that will, of course, take time. Right now, what uh, companies and researchers are trying to do is look at existing drugs, so antiviral drugs that have been approved and developed for other kinds of viruses like HIV, for example, and seeing if those have activity against this novel coronavirus. Now, a number of companies are involved uh, in both searching for new drugs and using existing medicines. Uh, in terms of those existing medicines, companies like AbbVie, which has donated some of its HIV drugs to wow. China, uh, Johnson & Johnson, whose HIV drugs are being investigated into whether they could potentially work. Gilead's got an experimental antiviral drug that's shown activity for SARS and MERS um, in very early stage testing, not in people. Uh, and that was used actually in the first novel coronavirus patient in the United States. That was just published over the weekend and showed promising results, but too early to say that it works. Meanwhile, there is vaccine work going on as well, but that will take some time, too. So the vaccine would prevent people from contracting the disease. The treatments right. are meant more to, to mitigate to the symptoms or, or to cure them. I mean, when you compare them to HIV, it sounds alarming because it's such a serious disease. How serious is the coronavirus at this point? Right now, there is a broad spectrum of the way people respond to this. Um, most of the cases tend to be mild, but they say about 20% of cases can be severe. So pneumonia, respiratory problems, and even people dying. Right now, the death uh, rate appears to be around 2%, so it is pretty low. If you compare that with SARS, it was around 10%. Wow. And MERS was as high as 30%. Uh, this looks to be uh, more infectious than SARS, uh, but doesn't kill as many people, and people are hoping that rate stays low. And I've heard reports 
reports that there are firms around the world who are racing to bring treatments to market in as little as two weeks' time based on maybe some novel uh you know, experiments. I, I don't know what else to call them. Yeah, there was a headline out of the UK this morning yeah. talking about that 14-day timeline, and that needs to be put into context. What they are talking about is very preclinical work before they even get into animals. So they need to put that potential vaccine into animal studies, see how it works there, and then if that looks good, then do human safety studies. And they're not saying they can start that before the summer, potentially. Those are the kinds of timelines we've also heard from the NIH and companies like Johnson & Johnson, which actually put a more conservative estimate of maybe a year to getting into human testing. And what people are talking about now, which is fascinating, is that this virus could turn out to be seasonal and perhaps wane during the summer months, kind of like we see with influenza. And if that happens, the outbreak might wane before it can be really tested in people. If it comes back, that may be when you see these vaccines potential vaccines being tested. Sure, it'd be great if they were here in time to, pre- to prevent it from, you know, next year right. getting, you know, as severe as it is now. So bottom line, there's not anything really we should expect uh, to help this that much unless there's a breakthrough with one of these existing drugs for the next six months and maybe longer. Yes, the existing drugs are where people can focus because they are already available, but you have to see if they work. And the World Health Organization in a briefing today being very careful to say nothing has yet been shown to work. Yeah. All right, Meg, thanks so much, Meg Terrell. Uh, for more on the coronavirus, you can tune into CNBC's special report. Outbreak Coronavirus will air live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time with the very latest. Meanwhile, the rally rolls on with stocks pushing, pushing higher for the third day in a row and coming off their best day since August. What's driving all of this bullish sentiment, she said. There's some optimism surrounding the containment of the coronavirus and efforts to fast-track medical solutions. There's also the blowout jobs data this morning. Private sector payroll saw the biggest monthly jump in five years in January. And maybe there's a Trump bump as the president's approval rating hit an all-time high in a new Gallup poll. For more, let's bring in Bryce Doty. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at SIT Investment Associates. And Chris Zaccarelli is Chief Investment Officer for the Independent Advisor Alliance. Great to have you both here. Uh, Bryce, can the rally keep going? You know, a lot of good news is baked in there. You named three really strong things. And that, that employment report of you know, 271,000 jobs was, was a blowout number, you know, way more than people expected. And that's also uh, driving or fueling the, the president's approval rating. I know there's, there's certain benefit from uh, the impeachment process and State of the Union and whatnot. But when you look at behind the numbers, uh, Trump's approval rating for handling of the economy is the second best in history for any president. Hmm. Uh, and so I think a lot of people might be saying, you know, if it's not broken, you know, don't fix it. Maybe he gets reelected. So, so the two are closely combined, how well the economy is doing, the jobs number and whatnot. But you're right. Is that if that's all baked in, right. where do we go from here? Right. Chris, it reminds me a little bit of the melt-up we saw after the president's election uh, when you had bank stocks surging, uh, you had a lot of optimism about his tax cut and jobs act, and then we moved sideways on the averages for a while. Uh, Could we be in a time, in a period similar to that now? I think that's possible. I mean, really, the markets are moving higher for for all those reasons that were mentioned. You know, you had a coronavirus fears, which seem to be receding, at least in the short run. The impact to global GDP may not be as bad as initially feared. You've got uh, good economic data coming out, whether it's the jobs number this morning or the 50.9 number above 50, meaning expansion in terms of the ISM manufacturing number. So there's some good economic data. There's been pretty good earnings across the board, and you're really seeing a, a receding of some of those fears. So I think that's what's pushing the market higher right now. But going going forward, uh, really what's going to move the market higher is going to have to be increased earnings. Multiple expansion can only get you so far. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think, to your point, we could go sideways if there's no catalyst to push the market higher from here. Meanwhile,
Al Bryce, you're looking at some of the areas that have been hit lately, including airlines, cruise lines, energy. Uh, why, where specifically would you bet there and, and why should they be ripe for a, a rebound? Well, you know, with things uh, feeling as good as they are, it does, it does seem like you need to take some money off the table in some of the, the areas of the stock market have done really well because, as you mentioned, you know, the, while there is some optimism on the coronavirus, it's, it's not over. There's still going to be damage to, to airlines, to the you know, leisure areas, and including energy uh, as well. I think there's going to be some opportunities there. Uh, you look at the cruise lines that have, um, that have had their ships kind of kind of quarantined. I mean, those are those are the names to kind of zero in on. You look at the airlines that have canceled the most amount of flights. Uh, that's another area where you probably are going to find some opportunity. I don't know that you need to do that now. Now might be a good time to just kind of have a little bit of cash, put some money in treasuries or, or something like that. So in a two to four weeks, when it looks like the infection rate is slowed, that's the time to probably move into those sectors. All right. And Chris, you're while Bryce might be leaning into some of the beaten down areas of the market, you're leaning into the winners, including tech and consumer discretionary. We've got $4 trillion market cap companies out there right now. How big can they get? No, that's, that's a great point. I mean, there clearly some of the stocks have run really far, really fast. And again, on a broader, uh, broader range, I would say, you know, technology in general, there's still some opportunities. The indices themselves are getting pushed higher maybe by a few companies. But if you look beyond those companies, even within the technology sector, let's say within semiconductors, you've got that 5G super cycle that's about to start. I think a, a guest on a prior show had, had talked about that, and, mm-hmm. I, and we really are, believe in that. We think between 5G, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, that's just starting to happen right now. We think there's a pretty wave, a pretty big wave there, which is why we like semiconductors. Also, looking in consumer discretionary, we, we'd be looking more in the home builders and more in the home improvement space. You've got record low unemployment, you've got wages that are rising, and you've got interest rates that are relatively low. We think those factors will allow you to find some, some good opportunities in, in what should otherwise be a, a pretty good upward trend. And, and so we're trying to be a little bit more selective and not just as broad brush, sure. let's say. You know, neither one of you have mentioned Tesla. <laughs> Anyone want to jump in with some thoughts there before we go? Bryce, what do you make of the price action there? Well, does it tell you anything? Yeah. Well, you know, the breakthrough that everyone's been looking for in uh, in that sector is, like, who can make an electric car profitably? And and it looks like they finally have um, figured out how to do that. The one concern I have is that uh, the $7,000 tax credit for buying a Tesla expired last year. So I don't know how much demand, you know, rushed in before that expired in the fourth quarter versus, you know, the, there might be some fall off in demand in the first quarter. So it's uh, it's still going to be a pretty volatile or dicey situation, but it, uh, it's amazing to watch. Well, Tesla is now down 19 percent. We're going to have a whole lot more in a moment. Guys, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Bryce Doty, Chris Zaccarelli talking about this market. And here's what else is ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, Tesla's massive rally hits the pause button. Are investors taking profits or are concerns about valuations seeping in? Plus, the magic of Macy's may be fading. The company takes drastic moves to try to stem declining sales and profits. But will it work? And why Casper investors may not be getting a good night's sleep today. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Tesla shares are tumbling today. They're down 18% after the company said some Model 3 deliveries in China will be delayed because of the coronavirus outbreak. Now, despite that pullback, the stock is still up 80% this year, with much of that in just the past week. Has this become a Tesla bubble? Joining me now is Charlie Grant. He's heard on the street columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Charlie, it's good to see you again. Nice to see you, Kelly. How much hate mail do you get, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> not, not as much today, but yeah. well, maybe after this appearance, we'll, right. see, we'll check when I so, turn my phone on. But, you know, we always used to joke about Martin Pierce being, you know, bearish on Netflix for the entire run-up. That was like the notorious herd on the street, you know, bear, bear char- This one might be more notorious now. Walk me through the whole psychology of why should this stock have been below $200 a year ago? Okay, now we're above 900 and- just tell me what you make of it. Well, well, Kelly, to be frank, I'm asking myself the same question, because when you look at the second half of Tesla's 2019, I see automotive revenue growth of 3% and EBIT decline of 13%, just about, or excuse me, 45% net income decline. That is not the basis for a parabolic move upwards. So when a stock has become this disconnected from reality, just about anything can happen in either direction. I think that's why 20% moves a day have started to become the norm in this thing. And I, my guess is, you know, this, if anything, is probably making you more bearish on the stock. I mean, right, what, what, you know, take the price action alone. What typically happens after a move like this? Well, I think, I think anyone who wants to look at a Bitcoin chart in 2017 or in, you know, iOmega or Qualcomm from 20 years ago, I think you'd see a move like this and you might not want to look too far ahead to the right after that. Um, I think this stock is exceptionally volatile, and it's the last sort of thing retail should be touching. And what we've seen this week is extraordinary. Three quarters of the float changed hands on Monday and Tuesday alone. Wow. Tesla is the most, pro- most popular trade on the Fidelity Orders page for weeks on end. The volume outpaces the SPY futures in the pre-market every day. And frankly, if you Google, I just Googled, should I, on autocomplete, it finished should i buy tesla stock right, right before i came in here right. that is not healthy and someone's going to get hurt out there and i think you've seen that today you make a good point uh, a couple of other uh, nuggets Robinhood it has the largest swing in new buyers on the app in the last three days although interestingly it doesn't seem to be as owned uh, by Robinhood investors as it was even at this time last year. Lately, if you if you say, should I buy a Tesla, you're starting to also see, should I sell Tesla too? Why is there so much retail interest in this stock, Charlie? What do you think the catalyst was or is? And is everybody who's in it now, you think, about to get burned? Well, well a chart, a chart, um, you know, a chart that goes straight up is highly appealing and people follow the chart. And that has worked for a long time in this stock. There were a few months last year where it wasn't working so well. But, you know, mostly trend followers uh, have been paid off. But we've reached a point now where the stock is at 25 times book value. Auto companies sell for one time at parity. And now you're, you're not, a, China's, you know, Tesla has a big China business. They're not immune to these right. you know, coronavirus fears or the supply chain shutting down, anything of this sort. All of the growth in the future is supposed to come from there and the new factories that are coming online, supposedly. And in fact, Canaccord Genuity did downgrade the stock today, uh, saying that the coronavirus is a clear headwind to the Shanghai facility. 
which is expecting to produce, you know, 3,000 cars a week uh, for China in the quarter. So that, that needs to be priced into the stock. But again, I'm not sure this is even about fundamentals so much as momentum right now. I don't know I if you saw right. this a moment ago uh, earlier today. Ralph Nader said the SEC should investigate this. What, what, here's a, what he said exactly. They should pay attention to the protection of investors here uh, and look to see whether there's been some insider trading, potential market manip- manipulation, uh, even the ability to clear the transaction, uh, he says, Charlie. Well, I'll let, I'll let Ralph own his own words on that. I will point out he knows a thing or two about big auto and misbehavior from his career. Yes, and that's why uh, his words carry some, uh, some weight, I would say. Um, so... I, I guess if you're Elon Musk, Charlie, what do you do now? I mean, this is somebody who's paid primarily as how the stock performs, and he might be feeling great right now, but I wonder also maybe a little nervous. Well, I think he has a fantastic opportunity ahead of him. If he can issue shares up here at, the, and at these levels or, frankly, anywhere close to them, he has a great chance to reset the fundamentals, clean up the balance sheet, and make a lot of the long-term concerns go away. Hmm. Um, you know, you know, they will actually have money for these uh, vanity projects he likes to talk Would about. Would that make you bullish on the stock if he did that? Not, not necessarily, but I'd be a lot less worried about its, the long-term fate of this company. And I think he has a chance to do that right now. I'm very interested to see how he reacts to this opportunity. Fascinating. Charlie, thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate it. Charlie Grant of The Wall Street Journal. Coming up, is Macy's strategy of getting smaller the key to bigger things ahead, or is it a sign of deeper troubles? We'll debate that. Plus, Casper has made its IPO bed, but investors may not want to lie in it. We'll tell you why and have more details on the pricing. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Exchange a big rally on Wall Street today. Stocks up for the third day now. The Dow adding 346 points at the moment. The S&P is up 27. The Nasdaq is up 15. And here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of cosmetic company Cody are up nearly 13% on a revenue beat and organic growth coming in stronger than expected. Management credits more disciplined promotions and the company also reaffirmed its full year guidance. How about shares of Ford down 9% to be the biggest loser in the S&P 500 today? The automaker missing earnings and giving a disappointing 2020 profit outlook. Weakness in North America, one of the key reasons why. And Match Group is down 8% as earnings disappointed on revenue and earnings per share. Tinder subscription additions also missed estimates, tie and were the lowest since 2016. Not only that, its first quarter guidance was below expectations. There's a swipe left or right. I don't know which one it is there, but whatever. Swiping but down. They did the no to Tinder yeah, no, today. No right. to Tinder. Uh, now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everybody. In Geneva, the head of the World Health Organization says the largest number of coronavirus cases in a single day were recorded in the last 24 hours. As of uh, 6 a.m. Geneva time this morning, there are 24,363 confirmed cases in China and 490 deaths. In the last 24 hours, we had the most cases in a single day since uh, the outbreak started. 
A Boeing plane skidded off the runway at Istanbul's airport, crashing into a road and breaking into pieces. Authorities say 120 of the 177 passengers on board have been hospitalized, but no one was killed. Officials say the accident was the result of a rough landing. A change of command on the International Space Station. Departing Italian astronaut Luca Parmentano handing over the key to the station to a Russian cosmonaut. American astronaut Christina Koch is said to return home tomorrow after 328 days in space, the longest single space flight by any woman. Congratulations to her. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. And there are just about 30 minutes left till Power Lunch, and I'm joined by Tyler Matheson. We'll see you at the top of the hour on Power Lunch. We're going to look at a couple of things. Uh, we're going to start with the CEO of Pioneer uh, Natural Resources. So we'll look at oil and gas, the stuff that goes into cars. Been a rough couple of weeks for the price of oil until today when it came back a little bit. Then we'll look at the cars themselves with the CEO of Group One Automotive, Earl Hestberg. He's always fun to have around. We'll talk to him about the auto business, uh, get some thoughts on Ford numbers, which were very uh, notably uh, soggy, yes. shall we put it that way, uh, for today. And so we'll look at uh, what goes into cars and then who's the cars buying you them. Yeah. Who's buying them. <laughs> Thanks so much. At on Power. We'll see you then. And here's what's coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, Macy's takes bold steps to try to stem losses. Will 2020 be the year of the chicken? It might be a rough night for Casper investors. And Snap says it's profitable for now. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Kate Rogers, Robert Frank, and Courtney Reagan. Welcome one and all. How long was the Macy's call for? Four and a half hours. That's when we My began. head hurts from the headphones, yeah. actually. <laughs> Macy's holding its investor day, if you're wondering. Uh, it has unveiled its three-year turnaround plan. This is a biggie. They're going to close 125 department stores. They're cutting 2,000 corporate jobs. The stock is up about 4% today. It's a round break even uh, for the year. Uh, but still, the shares are down 40% since Jeff Gannett became CEO in 2017. Um, a lot to unpack uh, from the call here today, Courtney. But first and foremost, they're trying to avoid becoming, frankly, Sears. What does this turnaround strategy today tell you? Absolutely. So there was an awful lot of focus on physical retail, as you might imagine, with Macy's right now sitting at more than 600 department stores. And they were pretty candid about what's going on in the mall. And Jeff Gannett, the CEO of Macy's, at one point said, look, I think 400 of the 1,100 malls are here for the long run. Wait, wait, wait. He says he thinks only 400, 400 of the 1,100 malls in this country are here to are stay. Are here for the long run. Yikes. And then the gentleman that's head of real estate for Macy's shortly thereafter says he thinks that 300 of the current malls are dead man walking. Okay. So they were pretty honest about the state of the mall, saying, look, some are very good. Others are really not very good. And that's part of why we're pulling out of there. They did say, look, all of these 125 stores, they are profitable. But the profitability is declining. And that's going to accelerate the problems at those malls. Well, I, okay, so here's my thing. Traditionally, it would because some of the sub-lessers, uh, what do we call them, they're, they could say, well, we've lost our big yeah. anchor, so it's worse for us. We're pulling out, too. But if Macy's is struggling as much as it is, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. I don't know. Yeah, it's a really tough call. I mean, look, there's a human cost to this, of course, both for the consumers and for the people that work there. Investors, as you pointed out, are happy to see sort of this tough love happening, I think, with the real estate optimization and some of the corporate restructuring. I think they look at this as, yes, you know, a lot of this work is duplicative. A lot of these retailers started their physical brick-and-mortar businesses. 
then they built a digital business. And they're doing an awful lot of work to bring those two things together. It sounds easy because that's how we all look at it, at yeah. shoppers. Macy's is Macy's. Everything should be able to just sort of be cross-platform very easily. It's a really hard thing to do behind the scenes. So that's part of what they're doing here, so too. So to that point, and when I was reading to get ready for this segment, I saw they're closing their technology offices as a mm. part of some of this restructuring, right, and getting rid of some yeah. of their satellite offices and, and reconsolidating. Like, what message does that send if you're getting rid of this part of the business that's supposed to, you know, shepherd in the so next they're, they're bringing those people from San Francisco okay. and from Cincinnati to New York. They've sort of operated this dual headquarter facilities for a long time, particularly with New York and Cincinnati. And then San Francisco was the added digital team. And they're just really far apart. And I think mm-hmm. most of them think, look, we can do a better job of bringing this business together, together if we are actually together. But that together. brings up a good question. Did they give you a sense on the call that they're going to be investing big time in the future of retail, whatever that looks like? Yes. Or is this more of a kind of let's ring fence what works and discard what doesn't and just try to make hang on as long as we can? It's all three of those things. They, they basically said we're focusing on the healthy parts. We are looking at what's unhealthy and figuring out how to very carefully get rid of that. And then we're going to optimize for the future. So they're doing all sorts of things to optimize the supply chain. And all of this, as I mentioned, does work together for consumers already. So when they close a store, they will also lose a lot of that digital business in those surrounding zip codes. Good point. And so they have to be careful how they do that. They're trying to offer other options, other local stores or some of these new uh, Market by Macy's, new pilot concepts, these smaller smaller stores to try to get the traffic to go somewhere else so it's not lost entirely. But they were pretty honest about the fact that some of that will be lost. And I love this uh, the point today as well that uh, it was one of the analysts says he thinks Target's going to benefit the most from this because 37% of Macy's stores that are closing are within three miles of a Target location. And by the way, my mom is a living example of that. She's hoping their Macy's doesn't close. She's already a big Target shopper down the road. And it's mm-hmm. like if she loses one, she's just going to go more to the other. Yeah, absolutely. It can be it can be a win for some of the other competitors in the area, yeah. especially if you think that it is easier and more convenient to do your shopping at Target than to have to park and go into the but mall. To isn't go into it Macy's. wild now? It speaks to the broader retail environment that those two things are interchangeable. Yes, Macy's absolutely. and Target. Target. Yeah. Yeah. more different, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I think I like yeah. Target's clothes better. Uh, anyhow, uh, let's talk some Snapchat. The parent company is ghosting investors after a mixed earnings report. Look at the shares. Uh, they are down about 14% right now. It's the worst day for Snap in over a year. And remember, this was the comeback story of the year in 2019 when the stock nearly tripled in value. Uh, competition is fierce, though. Uh, demonstrated by new reported revenue numbers from Instagram and YouTube. Guys, get this. Instagram reportedly does 20 billion in revenue, as you can see there, to YouTube's 15. That blows my mind. Of course, you also have TikTok coming in on the scene as well. And interesting to see that Snap did manage to grow its daily active users from 210 million in the previous quarter to 218 million. But when I'm looking at it, and admittedly, I don't really use Snapchat or TikTok, those two things really seem interchangeable to me. So who's the last man standing here when all said and done? And I know Snap has this new cameos feature, which looks to be a bit more TikTok-esque in, in its TikTok, nature. i got to tell you, so anecdotally, again, you know, you talk to the 12-year-olds, they <laughs> love TikTok. Yeah. They're trying to show me, here's how you use it. you got to be on this thing. It's so much fun. And when you go through the content and hear the music and, and then go back and look at something like Instagram or certainly any of the other platforms, maybe Snap, they, they all look a little stale by comparison. And it's not even the, the growth story that's the problem. I mean, their revenues grew 44%. So, it, you know, it, the growth is there. What Wall Street has a problem with is when are you guys going to post a profit? So they posted a profit in the quarter, but now they're, now they're saying, by the way, don't expect this for the future. This outlook for the year could be negative again. And I think that is more the issue than TikTok. But TikTok just shows you how faddish 
this whole world is. I mean, this year it could be TikTok. Next year it could be something else. And, you know, I have teenage daughters. They're on one thing. You know, the thing they one were on two then, years yeah. ago, it's like they didn't even, they can't even remember it. I, I think mean, it was they Gary. They just go from one to the other. Sure. And I, the Gary Vaynerchuk line where he was saying, if you want to reach the 12 to 20 year olds, now they are on TikTok. Yeah. So maybe the more interesting question is, why did Snap have such a good year last year as it was coming onto the scene? Or is, is it just that investors don't have enough confidence in the story you know, that, that contributes to so much of the volatility I think here. particularly the younger, younger generation has just either never been on Facebook or is migrating away from it, and, and it's TikTok and Snapchat for them. And Instagram obviously also had a lot of success with the Stories feature, which yes. kind of mimicked Snapchat. So I don't know. They all kind of seem But I also think TikTok, to your, to your question, Kelly, I think TikTok sort of came into the consciousness of adults and shareholders toward the end of last year, yeah. Yeah. whereas my daughters were kind of, they knew about it in the summer and later than that. So I think it's just, it's just the end of last year that people were aware of it, and yeah. particularly early this and year. And all of us old people get on TikTok, all the kids are, all all the kids are running away over. anyway, so see maybe they don't want me on it's it. The next, <laughs> it's the next Snapchat. Right. Exactly. Uh, meantime, CNBC is confirming reports that hedge fund uh, titan Steve Cohen has ended negotiations to buy the New York Mets. This is now the second billionaire the Mets have driven away. David Einhorn walked away in 2011. Here to break down uh, the story for us is Eric Chemi. Uh, come on down. Hello. Um, Hello. So what, is this now a problem of, uh, I guess, ownership on the Mets part? I mean, is it a coincidence that, that both of these deals have now fallen through? The Mets ownership has had a long track record of blunders, bad reputation for the way they operate their team, the way they do business. Bankers had told me in the past Sports deal makers, I don't trust the Wilpons. I don't do business with the Wilpons. Were they the ones that, that got uh, they were involved, involved with, with Madoff. the Madoff? Yeah. So that's why they have had this financial difficulty going back 10 years or more now. So they're always trying to sell these minority stakes but not give up ownership. This deal from the beginning to a lot of bankers didn't make sense that Cohen was going to buy the team, but the Wilpons would still be in charge for five years hmm. while he was the owner. So then they're changing it up on him a little bit. Is and he's that backed what happened? Away. I mean, why did it fall through? There's a mix of things out there. Part of it is that they wanted to stick around longer than five years. Part of it was what are we doing with the SNY network that originally they were still going to own, not Cohen. So there's all these complexities to it. These path to control deals are always tricky. It's not like, hey, I bought the team. You guys are gone. It's my team. It's, oh, I bought it and you're still here. Are you guys leaving? Maybe they're having Cohen is still a minority owner of the team. So is he going to stick around all upset at them but still be a minority owner? So they've got some issues they got to work out. And I wonder how the fans feel. And Robert, you know about Typical Steve billionaire Cohen, nonsense. It is typical. <laughs> so so uh, what I know about this is from David Faber's reporting, which has been terrific. And he was on FAN earlier today. And so he did a great interview there. And my sense of it is it wasn't so much that the, the five-year deal changed. It was that, that basically the Wilpons came at the last minute and wanted more money. Hmm. Uh, which is common in New York real estate. You get to the close to a deal and suddenly you want to chisel for another five, ten million dollars. <laughs> Steve Cohen is the kind of guy. He's very disciplined. You know, he's 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 a disciplined businessman. He said, "Look, you're not going to chisel me for extra money. But it's I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk. If you're going to ask for more money after this deal is basically done, right. I'm walking." And I. According to David, that's what happened. But he's still a minority owner? He is. I mean, he's still an LLP. There are lots of LLPs. I think Comcast is a minority owner. Uh, Bill, really? Bill, Maher, Bill Maher is a minority so, owner. But here, here's the thing. If you're a Mets fan, ostensibly you'd look at what you're describing with this leadership and, and be excited maybe that Steve Cohen was going to come in and, and write so the ship. So here's the I X mean, factor. And David suggested this on the FAN interview. There could be another bidder. There could be. There but could who's be spend another more bidder. than Steve Cohen? Exactly. Who? And that's the, that's the big question. If that in guy the, existed, the past, why did they sell it to him too? 
the past, ago. no one has been willing to spend more than Steve Cohen for a baseball team. He tried for the Dodgers, didn't get that same thing. So I agree with you, but there is some chatter out there that there may be someone else. And that perhaps that's why the Wilpons felt confident enough to come and ask for more money well, from Cohen. Buyer beware night. if they treat him the same way as they treated Steve yeah. Cohen. <laughs> and it's that <laughs> trust issue. If I can't trust you to do this deal, how can I trust you over the next five years right. to be a partner in the team? Fair enough. Uh, do you have strong thoughts about chicken sandwiches, Eric? I love chicken sandwiches. Okay. I almost had one for dinner last okay. night. Okay, <laughs> stick around because before we go, Jeffries is calling 2020 the year of chicken innovation. Why is this a term, chicken innovation, Kate? Uh, McDonald's is launching two new breakfast chicken sandwiches to be more competitive. Wendy's is launching uh, breakfast nationwide on March 2nd. And in it, this all, does this all go back to Popeye? Like, I don't understand why did chicken become such a, an so, important thing? So there's a lot going on, and it does have to do with the Popeyes and Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich battles. Over the summer, that's something that McDonald's really sat out, right? It hadn't introduced a premium chicken sandwich. It's something that its franchisees are reportedly uh, asking for, so they do need to do that. But McDonald's is also going through the experience of the future upgrades. That's upgrading all of its restaurants across the United States. So its franchisees are already going through a massive change. Uh, new CEO Chris Kempchinski, we just heard from him this last quarter. It was his first quarter in this role. He said, we're really updating and competing in an aggressive way in the chicken segment. So they are going to do something this year. It's something that I think customers really want. But he seems to be taking a measured approach to it, which makes sense. The franchisees just went through this big upgrade. He's a new CEO. We right. want to get it right. It makes sense to wait it out, but some people do think it hurt their earnings two quarters well, ago. Well, we saw Wendy's was it. up 40% last year. McDonald's is only up 10%. I mean, it's, and by the way, the Wendy's breakfast launches include, I, the, I think these are great terms, the Frosty Chino, sounds mm. delicious, the Honey Butter Chicken Biscuit. I know, that sounds that's good. Good. Oh, the bacon one, the maple bacon. The breakfast bacon. bacon. Yes, that's <laughs> the one that's good, the maple bacon, like, on a croissant, all the fat I plus 10. Chicken is supposed to be a healthy breakfast. Yeah, chicken. Chicken's the new They want to eat junk, but they don't want the red meat. That's it's exactly like in between, what I was like, the say. impossible food. You don't want beef. We got fried chicken for you. <laughs> well, it's funny when we're talking about breakfast wars. I mean, think about the size of McDonald's compared to a Wendy's. Like, yeah. it is pretty impressive, though, that Wendy's campaign is getting people talking about who will win at breakfast. Yes. I mean, and they haven't even launched it nationwide yet. That's true. That is true. I mean, all this, for all this talk about Beyond Meat, I'm not so interested in the idea of an Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat Burger. Maybe I don't love the idea of so much red meat. So, yeah, chicken is a nice sort of, like, in-between junk food step for me. And they already know how to do it on the restaurant side, Who, right? McDonald's. Of course, they can do a great job with it when they're ready to do it. So I think that's why they're kind of cautiously approaching and getting ready to aggressively compete. There's less questions about chicken. Like, tastes like chicken. It's chicken. Yeah. <laughs> like, I still don't really get the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat. What is it? I don't understand the Too many ingredients. Pea protein. Too much. Yeah, I think the stock is reflecting those, uh, those doubts lately as well. Thank you all. Appreciate it, guys. Eric, Kate, Robert, and Courtney. We've got a market flash on Biogen. Meg Terrell is here with that one, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, Biogen stock is up sharply after the company won a highly anticipated patent decision about its biggest drug, Tecfidera. That's a multiple sclerosis drug. The patent decision was against the company Mylan. Uh, Biogen stock now up 19% on this decision. This is a $4.5 billion drug, Kelly. Back to you. Meg, thank you very much, Meg Terrell. Casper's IPO valuation could give investors some nightmares. A look at whether you should get in bed with the stock when it starts trading tomorrow. That's next.
Welcome back. Mattress startup Casper disclosing that it will cut its IPO price range. When Casper first filed its S-1 documents, the range was $17 to $19. Now it's down dramatically to a range of $12 to $13. This means Casper's valuation, which hit a peak of $1.1 billion in March of last year, is now just about half of that. The most it's worth is about $520 million. Now that means it's lost its unicorn status. Part of the problem is that the self-described pioneer of the sleep economy is doing not-so-disruptive things anymore. According to the New York Post, one potential investor who went into the company's Thursday presentation said he decided to pass on Casper after hearing executives like the CEO talk about their planned expansion to brick-and-mortar shops. The horror. Let's bring in Dan Primack. He's business editor of Axios. Dan, what you know? it's interesting at a time when people are saying Tesla tells you how much you know, momentum and froth there is in the market. Well, not the IPO stories. I mean, Casper is just the latest example, isn't it? It is. I mean, look, we've had some successful IPOs uh, and even some successful startup IPOs. But Casper's a look, Casper's a mattress company. We have seen mattress companies for 20, 30 years. You know, you read their IPO prospectus and you'd think they were the first ones to discover that not only do we sleep, but we like to kind of have a buffer between the floor and and where we lie at night. (laughs) But mattresses have been around for a while. And, and, you know, if you look on the private equity side of it, the private equity industry is full of mattress bankruptcies in the past. So we also have competitors to Casper. In case people aren't aware, there are other kind of mattress-in-a-box companies like Lisa and Nectar. Are there any real uh, barriers to entry uh, for uh, for this business, Dan? Not really, no. It's an adoption thing. You're right. And, and the mattress in a box thing is a little bit weird uh, from, from, a, from a differentiator, right? Because, for example, I got a mattress recently. I needed a new mattress. And I did the old-fashioned way. Two guys showed up in a truck and brought the mattress in. You know, it, it's not like Amazon where you're worried about having, you know, package after package after package Absolutely. You know, stacking up outside. You get a mattress. You can, you can be home for that or, or whatever else. So, yeah, they, they've got competition on all sides. High-end, low-end, legacy, new. Now, we talked about an investor who said, I don't like the fact that they're going into brick and mortar. Uh, they're already in brick and mortar, by the way. Raymore and Flanagan touts their partnership with Casper, saying they're, they make a perfect pair, which, again, I'm not sure gives this message of a disruptive you know, company looking to be hot with millennials, if that's their partner, frankly. You know, what, what does Casper need to show investors to justify doubling its valuation here and reaching the heights that it, it once traded at, or is that just going to be unachievable? I think it's going to be unachievable, and you can see that because some of the venture capital investors have already committed to buying about 10% of the IPO. That's really unusual outside of biotech. On the brick and mortar, remember, Casper went into Target several years ago, and everyone believes that there was kind of a handshake deal. The target, If it worked, Target was going to buy Casper. That didn't happen. Instead, Target invested, and that kind of threw Casper into a little bit of a tailspin. Um, so I think there are big questions with that. What they need to show investors... Casper is basically arguing that they can sell other products. They call them soft products, uh, pillows, sheets, things we buy more often than we buy mattresses, which have a really long replacement cycle. The problem is when you read through the S1, they don't exactly explain how much of that they have been able to sell to, you know, to existing customers or to new customers. Right. It's funny. I actually bought a, a, a set of sheets from Casper. It might have been through Amazon, but I, I have to say it's not that I was seeking it out. It just kind of was there and seemed like a decent option. Uh, and will, if they they don't really have, you know, something to set them apart from the mattress landscape. How do they compete in, in a category like bedding? I mean, that, that's a very different kind of company. It's a very different kind of company, but it is what they have to do. You know, there, there's been a lot of talk that, you know, if Casper's IPO doesn't do well, that's a big, big problem for the DTC, the direct-to-consumer industry. But I, I think that kind of 
having Casper be kind of the representative of DTC isn't right. I think Casper is a piece of DTC. It is these long replacement cycles, as opposed to, say, shoes, where you have lots of shoes probably in your closet, maybe multiple types of sneakers, for example. Casper, you get a mattress, maybe two or three, depending on how many rooms. It's a different thing. You need to be able to sell the sheets and the pillows. And as you say, there's not that much differentiator. And if you're going through Amazon or if you're searching on Google, they're really reliant on other people's platforms. That's a great point. Dan, good to see you. Thanks for the, uh, for the thoughts. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dan Primack of Axios and Casper will start trading tomorrow. And states across the country are now making financial literacy classes a requirement for students. We'll meet the principal who was an early advocate of this next. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. A new report finds that more schools are requiring students to take a personal finance course in middle school or in high school, even if state law doesn't require it. And many educators say teaching money skills simply makes sense. Sharon Epperson has that story. Come on in. Hello. Roosevelt Middle School principal Lionel Hush is passionate about his work. He loves his students and says it's never too early to get them ready for the real world. Do you ever wonder what your life would be like if you'd taken a class in middle school about money? Most definitely. I always do. If I knew this before, I would be in a much better situation. His parents worked hard and told him about the importance of financial independence. But he was not taught what his students are learning today. Hush partnered with a local nonprofit in 2017 to offer Saturday classes on financial literacy at the Westorn, New Jersey school, before the state mandated that starting this school year it be included in curriculum for all 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Where are stocks traded? Anyone know? What's the most important lesson you've learned in your financial literacy class? We've learned the fundamentals of money management, like investing, saving, budgeting, and donating, and it's incorporated real-life aspects. You learn about how to save money for college and rest of your life, and how to like spend your money wisely without wasting it. A life lesson Hush says he wishes he'd learned earlier. You always have to kind of plan. Uh, you, you can enjoy today, but at the same token, you want to plan for tomorrow. And Sharon Epperson joins me now. So she said they're learning investing and saving and budgeting. Sharon, compound interest. That's what we want these kids to learn. <laughs> well, they're learning about that. They're learning about dividends. They, they are really smart about the type of stocks that they're picking, and they're picking what they love. They love retail stocks. <laughs> well, they better be careful uh, <laughs> with know. some of those lately. How many states you focus on New Jersey? But this is becoming more and more common across the country, isn't it? A report came out today from the Council for Economic Education, and we're seeing progress. 21 states now require students to take a personal finance course in order to graduate from high school. That's all the states in the green there. Wow. And, we're, and that's up from about 17 states about two years ago. So we are seeing some progress being made. And what's interesting is the number of states that are also saying, let's implement some financial education K through 12. And so starting even earlier, like these children are doing at 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, or maybe even in elementary school, can really make a difference. That's great. We'll put a CNBC uh, TV on in every classroom. In every class. <laughs> that's exactly right. They're all glued to it. Learn by osmosis. Sharon, thank you so much. Sure. Sharon Epperson. You can read more about Lionel Hush's story at cnbc.com slash Black History Month. And we should note that NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Well, Jewel and other e-cigarette makers are testifying on Capitol Hill today. We'll head to Washington for the fiery exchanges and what's at stake for the whole industry next.
Welcome back. E-cigarette makers are testifying and getting grilled on Capitol Hill for the first time since the CDC began investigating vaping-related deaths. Frank Holland is there, and he has the latest for us. Frank, how, does, how is it going so far? Well, Kelly, this hearing, as contentious as expected, with the five CEOs of the e-cigarette companies that represent 97% of the U.S. market, facing tough questions under oath and also facing harsh criticisms of their business. Thanks to your products, this is an entire generation of young people that are now addicted to nicotine. If you wanted to be men of integrity and responsible men, uh, you would not be selling this product. To be clear, this hearing had very high stakes. This committee oversees the FDA. That is the agency that will approve or deny applications for e-cigarettes to stay on the market, a process called the Pre-Market Tobacco Application, or a PMTA. And when we look at the e-cigarette market, Juul is still the leader, but its sales are definitely declining as well as its market share as the concerns over bathing deaths, they have just grown, enjoying nearly 800% growth in the most recent month of data. After the hearing, the CEOs of Enjoy and Blue both refusing to comment on what happened. Can I ask, how do you think this hearing will impact the future of e-cigarettes? Do you think that you were asked fair questions? Mr. Blondie, do you think this will impact your PMTA? Not a lot said by those CEOs, but the chair of this committee afterwards, she was very vocal about her plans to speak with the new commissioner of the FDA as soon as possible. Any marginal benefit these e-cigarettes may have is really dwarfed by the addiction of teenagers that we've seen in the vaping epidemic. And one important thing to know is that the PMTAs must include evidence that somehow these products actually protect the public health. After today's hearing, the chairwoman at least said she seems to believe that's going to be a very hard case to make. Frank, you think they'll, they'll, these products will still be on the market uh, in the next few years? How much are they going to crack down? You know, Kelly, I don't want to speculate, but when you look at the youth vaping numbers, when you see about more than a quarter of all high school students say that they're using vaping products, well, that's certainly concerning. That's a lot for the FDA to consider, in addition to the more than 2,700 cases of vaping-related deaths or illnesses. Right, and yet they have to balance that against those people who may stop smoking, and, and that may be even more harmful. We'll see how it shakes out, Frank. We thank you very much for bringing that to us. Frank thank Holland you. is on Capitol Hill today. And that does it for The Exchange. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.